Welcome back, everybody. Time for another episode of Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality today. The dash of recovery thrown in along the way. So if you've ever had questions about the church, about your own feelings about God and spirituality, then maybe you become a bit confused or even a bit jaded in your attitudes towards it all. Well, then you've come to the right place. Because our host, well, he's been there with you. He was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, and planted three churches along the way. He also taught at a prestigious university and was a teaching pastor at a large megachurch here in Orange County. But now, well, he's just an aging curmudgeon, like so many of us, who never ceases to ask the one question on all our minds, why? Hey, why not bring him in? Dr. John Bash, welcome, sir. Hey, Paul. Well, I I think you're going to want to stay on with this one and uh, dive in. I'm looking forward to it, yeah. Yeah, this this is going to be a little bit different. I can just tell you at the outset, and, and for those who are looking on video, I don't know that they've seen the guy yet, but, well, let, let me just say this. This is... Uh, we're talking about mental illness. Can you imagine why? Why can we do a show on mental illness? You know, we live in a world right now where I feel like all of us are there, right? I mean, it's crazy. Everything's shut down, and man. But let me let me just give this as the introduction. I, it was a it was a watershed moment in my life, and um, I don't just say it. Looking back, um, I knew it at the time. A decision had to be made, and there wouldn't be any turning back. I was mentally, spiritually, physically exhausted. I'd studied laboriously. That's what I do when I get stuck in a corner. I figure I must be in that corner because I didn't know enough. Then I feel stupid. How can you not feel stupid if you're stuck in this corner? Smart people don't get stuck in corners like this, do they? And then I became an expert. I talked to more people about it. I read more. And now it felt like I was stuck in the corner with a suicide vest on. My only option was to blow myself up. Have you ever felt stuck in a corner by something in life like that? Had I been the suicidal type, it would have been the end of me. Now, I'm not going to name names or tell you where the bodies are buried. But I will give you the category. It's called mental illness. In so many ways, that defies definition because rational categories seem to elude it. And I I called the guy that we're about to talk to. But if I keep trying to talk about this, I'm going to get in trouble. So I brought him in to do it, and he is just crazy enough and just rational enough to make sense out of it. Dr. Jim Stout from Costa Mesa, California, is a husband of one for over 50 years, a father of two, grandfather to six, longtime pastor, author, speaker, and handler of the therapy dog, the wonder dog. That's what he's most proud of. Welcome, Dr. Jim Stout to Church Hurts and. Thank you, John. Well, how's that for for an introduction? You know, I... um, I'd like you to kind of just start us out um, 
from that time in your life when everything looked great about you from the outside and and yet there was a storm going on inside of you that changed everything tell me about that well most most storms don't just come out of the blue they have an origin somewhere and in my case uh growing up in a very very uh tough home situation mm-hmm. mother had some minerals sexually abused uh uh, verbally, emotionally abused, so forth. That was a, a little background. And then I uh, pastor, I don't know how many churches, but three of them were really, really toxic. And I had my wife's life, my young son's lives, and my life threatened multiple times. Uh, in one church, I was preaching on the 23rd Psalm and compared people to sheep. And uh, you wouldn't believe the hate mail I got and the threats, and uh, etc. And then I went to, that was a very, you might say, liberal church. Then I went to one that was over 100 years old, and they were just as judgmental, not quite as threatening, but anyway, and then... Uh, wait, wait, Jim, hold on a second. So you're talking about you were a youth pastor in these churches, I assume, at this point in time, and you're having your life well, threatened? My first pastor, I was a youth pastor for five years. Okay. And you, and people- I was a senior pastor until my last one. But people were threatening you. I mean, I don't think the average person listening to this show is sitting there saying, what's he talking about? He's a pastor and people are threatening him? What's that about? Well, I came across more as a Christian than as a Presbyterian. Ah. And I didn't go by, in their opinion, all the Presbyterian rules. And uh, they didn't either. But be that as it may, and... uh, uh, one guy from Germany, a famous preacher, Tilika, said, the person who takes Jesus Christ seriously must necessarily be a heretic. So I've had people mm. over the years <laughs> pray, because I, pray for me because I was a liberal, and others pray for me because I was a fundamentalist bigot. You can't win either way. So, okay, so I interrupted you. Keep going. So what happened? Well, uh, I was cruising right along. The last church, I was an associate pastor working with men and uh, families out here in Newport Beach and outwardly everything was going well. All my churches did very well. Financially, new members, growth, all that. But uh, I think the accumulated, I did a little boxing long ago and after a while near the end of the fight you can get worn down by taking too many punches. And I had taken too many punches and so after I'd been there just barely two years couple comments by uh, one minister uh, on an event that I had sponsored and some comments by my dad just took me down. I didn't want to live. I was looking for places to drive my car into a concrete apartment and uh, ended up seeing a therapist and went into a mental mental hospital for uh, almost five months out of there for about, about a month and then back in another one for about three weeks wow. with bipolar disorder. And I um, thought they were totally wrong. I was mainly depressed. And, hey, hey, Jim, do, just let me stop for a second, because um, I had the misfortune of following you at one of those churches where you were a youth pastor. And they hadn't had anything after you. I think you, you, you caused such a stir 
I mean, it was so big and so successful. Those people will never forget that time in their life. I mean, people's lives were changed. Kids' lives were changed. And so in I come, and they're expecting me to. You, when you spoke, um, I mean, people listened. You were really successful. You underestimate. You, you, yeah, you said it was successful. But, I mean, you really um, helped people in a big, big way. And I can imagine with men I know as well, I mean, the things were really growing and people were responding. And now you're saying you're, you end up in the mental hospital. Right. I mean, I'm sure people, I'm sure they responded to that real well in the church. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, one of the churches I certified, I, could, I would probably have been kicked out because many churches are very closed on mental illness. So I do a lot of conferences and workshops and seminars in secular venues as well as churches and churches are pretty closed systems but i even in those days i knew i'd taken a lot of shots from a dysfunctional home and as an athlete i'd done three sports college football wrestling and boxing and you learn to go with some punches you just punch through it and uh so i just didn't realize how many punches i'd taken and in all those churches, they sort of had an accumulated effect. I, I, I really had a ball in that church in Key Biscayne. It was hard work. I worked long hours. It was hard. But I really loved it. And, uh, well, okay, so, and, and as I confirm, afterwards, five years later, they, they were still talking about it. And, but, so, but you're in, and they give a name, though, to what your problem was. You now are bipolar. So... Um, you're sitting there, like, struggling with, you know, holding on to life with your fingertips, and now they say, your problem's bi- bipolar. Pick us up from there. What happened? Well, the first church, or the first mental hospital was a Christian one, and they misdiagnosed me as simply depressed. The second one, they gave an accurate diagnosis, and that simply means mood swings. I really don't care what they call it, bipolar, bipolar, if it's, if it's in interfering with my life. I want to get on top of it and move ahead, and uh, whatever it is. And uh, so I read voraciously. I interviewed all kinds of people, uh, patients, family members, psychiatrists, psychologists, now in the thousands, literally. And that's come into some of my books that I spoke about. Uh, now, did they, they put you on medication, I assume? Oh, my goodness. In, uh, that was 31 years ago, 1988. In that time, I have swallowed a minimum of 52 different psychiatric medications. Whoa, and 52. I could have died, died probably four or five times on, on psychiatrists, mis-medications mis- like too much or the wrong one, or pharmacy ones. And the, the side effects were just horrific. Uh, my wife thinks that they saved my life. I don't know. I, do, I don't know, because some antidepressants actually cause depression in some people who are depressed, especially with bipolars. I've had to learn a lot about this. And 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 your wife, um, let's let's just bring her into the equation because I'm gonna just say somebody. Okay, so that isn't it the case often that somebody can really help? And in your case that somebody probably there was a number of people by that, you know, somebody name who helped you, but your wife 
she was a minister too. So she was involved in the church up to her eyebrows. And now she has you swallowing all these pills and all these different, you know, psychiatric stuff going on. And she's like, where's my husband, I assume, right? Yeah, it got a little testy sometimes. It really did. We had a lot of counseling. And uh, at that time, she was not a minister. She is now. She's been a minister for 20 years, but that was 31 years ago. So you drove her into the ministry. That's how crazy she got. Well, I told her she she owes me for half of her customers. (laughs) That's so bad. Oh, man. So, okay, but you, let's get to, to where you went from the person whose life was consumed with this problem. And you really, I mean, it it consumed you. I mean, you couldn't work a lot of times. You weren't fitting in the definitions of anybody. And you, you found, you found help in a place you didn't expect, didn't you? Well, I'm not sure what you're getting at, but I read a lot. I did all the research I could. I had a very, very good psychologist who's a therapist, very good. And I was willing to work at it. I was willing to work at it. Sometimes I wanted to give up many times, but I kept plugging ahead. I guess some of that's athletic. She just, just punched through it. Well, I, I think what, what I was getting at there is just you have a way of approaching this subject, and you have a bunch of books on it, um, but... Uh, you saw a connection between your struggles um, with mental illness and people who struggled with addiction. Yes. And and so your solution ended up being the same as people who had problems that seemed totally different and unrelated to you. Yes. So basically, I got to a place in my life where I started to drink too much. Well, that didn't work, um, that's for sure. And yet, you and I have a common agreement on where some solution is here. Yeah, statistically, and obviously things vary, but at least most of the stats on bipolars, for instance, upwards of 70% of bipolars have a drug or alcohol addiction. The other 30% at some other addiction, gambling, overwork, sex, whatever. My addiction was food. I'm a foodaholic. And I'm, uh, so what that what that does is it simply numbs the pain of the depression or the mania or the agitation. It numbs it so that you can do it. All the psychiatric medications just simply kind of took the edge off so that you could function. But you go through enough stresses and that best medication in the world will not hold you. You have to have some coping skills. And that's what I got from, I went to all kinds of meetings, OA, AA, NA, whatever, and I'm very grateful for or Alcoholics Anonymous, they call it the big book. The title is Alcoholics Anonymous, but a, a lot of, you just put the word, you just put the word depression instead of alcohol, or food mm. instead of alcohol. And it's a very practical, very uh, spiritual, and it really helped, it helped me. Hey, I know, Paul. I know many people who do not have quote, mental illness diagnosis were more mentally ill than people who have it. I, I started and led a free support group for people with mental illnesses here in Costa Mesa for 25 years, and I started in other places. And we would have, we had 
surgeons and nurses and architects and clergy and homeless people and gay people and addicts of all sorts. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. What do you think of this guy, Paul? I think it's an amazing story. And the question I had as I listened to this, it's a good Irish Catholic who's gone through his own periods of bouts of depression and, and struggled with it uh, deeply at times. Uh, I, and I was struck by what you said, that the church didn't have much place for you. Talk about that. Isn't the church supposed to heal people? Isn't that Jesus' mission, to come here to help people, to heal people? And you didn't feel helped or healed, it sounds like. No, you hit it right on the head. I was persona non grata. Why? Uh, I had people. I had, we'll go back to John's key question always. Why? <laughs> yeah, I had many clergy. Most of the clergy friends, I was in several clergy support groups, uh, and they avoided me like the plague. No, po- you know, if somebody goes in the hospital, you send them a get well card, nothing. If you'd had a heart attack, though, they would have been there for you. They would have raised I, money for you. Exactly. I had both clergy and lay leaders say, Jim, you don't have a mental illness. You just simply are overworked. You mm-hmm. bite off more than you can chew. You don't know how to say no. But and others would say, Jim, your problem is you're demon-possessed. And we have this demon exorcism group that meets on Wednesday nights. Come on over here. And others would say, no, you have a lot of unconfessed sin in your life, so you need to get things right. And so going to church was very, it was really tough for a long time. So my question is why, to both of you, you've both been ministers, why is the church so, and I don't disagree with what you're saying, I don't think the Catholic Church is any better at handling this than any other church. I, I think it goes to the underlying issue, I'll give you my own personal bias, that we don't see mental illness as an illness. We see it as something else, gut it out, tough it out, a weakness or, or some other cause. It's not a chemical imbalance. It's not a, it's not a physical thing like a, a heart attack or a kidney stone is. That's my own personal feeling of it. But why are churches and ministers in particular so poor at handling this? You've both been ministers. Well, statistically, uh, they've done quite a few studies on this in that, uh, oh, if you have a mentally ill member of your family and you or that person goes to a clergy, no matter what denomination, 40% of the time, that clergy is the least helpful of anybody they would see. And uh, then there was a study of mainline denominations across the board. Now, these are ones that have what are called clinical pastoral education where they're taught about shrinkology yeah right and uh i'm trying i don't it's in one of my books but i'm thinking the statistics are like 40 to 60 percent of those clergy believe that mental illness was caused by sin or demons and these are educated people Uh, yet they Um, wouldn't say that about your kidney stone they wouldn't say well i'm gonna it's a demon that's in there Yes. Let's, even, let's go bigger, Jim, because you, um, you know, you did. You sounded like me when you said, "When I said, what'd you do?" Here, you're stuck faced on what'd you do? You study, you study, you study. As we go bigger on that, I, I remember a couple years ago being in London and walking down the street, and happened to be with this amazing tour guide. And there was only two of us that he was guiding for, and he pointed up, and said, "You know what that is?" And we're like, "What?" He said, "That's bedlam." 
And oh. I'd never had hit me before. Oh, I, you know, I just thought bedlam means what we all think it means is just everything's chaotic and a mess, like what we'd consider going on in the streets. When no, it was a just, real mental institution that gave yeah. birth to that term. Yeah. yeah. And but the thing is, that's what we think initially. It's just what you said, Paul. We think it was a mental institution, and what it really was was the place they put anybody that they didn't know how to handle. Right. And so they put in alcoholics in there. They put in people who had other handicaps. They certainly put in people with learning disabilities. I mean, it was just the culture, you know, in, you know, in that time was so antiquated that, I mean, it's just, it's horrific if you think of the amount of beatings initially with drugs, with shock therapy, all kinds of stuff chaining them up just locking them away yeah yeah and so now it's easy for us i think to pick on the church because the church particularly the ones like presbyterians who were really educated at princeton for goodness sakes they should know better and it's it's come a ways since then though hasn't it jim i mean it's not as bad as it was yeah if you look just across the board, uh, alcoholism and drug addiction 50 years ago, they were really, really bad people. Uh, bad stigma. And the same thing with mental illness. Give it another 10 years and things will begin changing. It'll be more accepted. I, the church that I left on, the last church I served full time, I helped out with a big uh, starting up a support group for patients and also for family members, and also a conference there. And so they've been educated a lot more. So churches can be educated. I think that's a part of it. Some clergy simply have their mindset, you can't even get in the door on something like that. But I've spoken to churches from 100 to 12,000, and you see all variations. Okay, give, give, me, um, give me a practical step. Uh, you know, there's some of our listeners who... Um, share like you did maybe even right now who are just they're facing things in their own life that it's not making sense they're asking for help maybe they even went to a church or went to a counselor and they're still nobody gets them they're not understood they're struggling to want to get up in the morning and keep going in the day start out with just okay where do you start to get out of that negative loop where you don't want to live anymore. Well, first of all, I've been there, and not just once, quite a few times. Most of my ministry over the years has been with men and with leaders. One of the things I do, I have a men's packet that I give. One's an article, a couple of articles by Terry Bradshaw, former quarterback, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. Chronic depressive all of his life, cost him several marriages. He finally got help. You'd never believe it the way he the way it's so jovial on TV as a commentator. Another one, I think it was the chairman of the board of CNN and it was the publisher of the LA Times. I can't think of his name right now. He was on a lead article in the Wall Street Journal a number of years ago. He would almost lay catatonic under his desk with depression until he got help. Help meaning getting some kind of therapy, some kind of medication to help with the rough edges and some kind of support system he comes out of the closet in that article and explains it. And that gives a lot of men permission, for instance, men like, oh, it's okay. This is not just a weak link in me. This is just like getting a uh, 
a bad diagnosis of cancer of the liver or cancer of the colon or whatever. I've got to deal with this. And, uh, and I suspect that's where, if I can just chime in, I think that's where the similar, the tie you said between alcoholism and depression. One may be another way to cover up an underlying well, problem, but they both have the same stigma. Yes. Uh, my uncle was an alcoholic, and he used to say, and, and my dad for years used to just say, he's just weak. He yes. could quit if he wanted no to. No willpower. No willpower. No willpower. And the same thing when I went through my period of depression. My dad kind of looked at me like, you're just weak. You know, come on, gut it out. Snap out of it. Snap out of it. Yeah, right. Well, you can't. No, no you don't snap out of a broken leg. No. No, exactly. No. I've had eight major knee surgeries, and I'm on a second set of fake knees. You don't just snap out of that. It takes a lot of rehab. Right. But, so I'm hearing, I'm hearing, basically... One, don't quit talking to people. If you get the wrong stuff, don't quit. T- don't quit talking. And somewhere in the process, you gotta you gotta get the identification of what it is, though, right? Right. Yeah, and that's where it helps. And uh, psychiatrists generally, probably ninety eight percent of them, do not counsel counsel. They just dispense pills, right. and that's okay, uh, insurance wise. But there are many counselors that I know, psychotherapists, uh, you name it, psychologists, social. They couldn't counsel their way out of a wet paper bag, but they're, the vast majority are very gifted, very dedicated people. And uh, so my suggestion is if you go to one machine and, and one person that doesn't work out, go to another. Keep trying. It's like going to a support group or an AA group. If the fit isn't good, try a couple of others. That's really hard. But the thing is, it's easy to to blame somebody else. I could blame a lot of people churches I served, the family I grew up. I have a lot of people I could blame. But if I was in a car accident, I hit, got hit broadside, which I was two years ago, uh, I could lay out in the middle of the pavement there and just bitch and moan and, and uh, say it was the drunk driver's fault, whatever. And I'd probably die there. I'd probably bleed to death. But I have to call 911 and get an ambulance. I've got to pay for my own hospital co-payments. I've got to pay for medication. I got to pay for rehab, physical therapy. I have to take responsibility for spend the rest of my life kind of blaming other people. Can I ask you one other thing though, and then I'll shut up here. I I, I found it to, that when I went I went through a period of deep dark depression, which is kind of in the Irish soul here, I guess you know, and 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 a bunch of stuff hit me, and then I, like you said, accumulated too many punches, and this one I didn't seem to bounce back from. So I went and sought help, and uh, and uh, eventually did take a pill which helped kind of take the edge off of it here um, and allow me to work through it and I think it's a tendency like alcoholism that you're always kind of it's a, it's a susceptibility it's a it's a physical characteristic that's within me it's a it's a gene it's a it's a something that I'm susceptible to and I have to watch but here's my point everything else your body tells you what to do to heal you burn your hand it says take it out of the fire you you snap your leg it says snap it back together you know it's it's there to protect you but your brain when your brain is sick when your brain is damaged what else have you got to work through it because your brain's sending you the wrong signal it's saying hole up run away dive down into a deep hole and pull the top over you know end your life whatever it's sending it's not you're fighting the only tool you have to fight back with. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, I think the same thing, Paul, you say applies to the heart. Mm. What does the heart tell you about the kit? Does it give you does it give you directions on what to do? No. no. So you go to a heart doctor, bang around other heart patients who've had struggles but have come through it. You pick their brains on what diet did they use, what exercise program. You know, you try to learn from other people. I just found I'm trying to handle it through reason, through my brain, and my brain's not functioning right. And I thought to myself, what else have I got? That's where you got to get outside of your own head. You got to go talk to somebody. Uh, and let me um, l- let me put two things together. You ran together in one sentence, Jim, and I think it's so important. And I don't I don't want folks to miss this. You were talking about going to a psychologist um, that way, and then you said, and or a support group like AA. Da 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 da. Well, when you tell people that they should go to a group. Um, and it could be a codependence anonymous. It could be sexaholics anonymous. It could be whatever. And I tell you, it's the last thing you want to do is go to a bunch of people, anonymous or not, and go in there because you feel like I am a nut. And then you go in if somebody has the guts to get to one and find out where one is and with google it's just easy to find man if you if you stay three times that's my thing just stay three times go to three of them and all of a sudden because at first you think they are all nuts and that you have it together so that that your frustration get you through the first meeting the second meeting, you're starting to wonder, why are they saying these same things over and over again? They sound like a cult. In the third meeting, you start listening to some of the stories, and you start seeing yourself in the stories and starting to see, oh, this is why I fit, not why I don't fit. And I, and I just come to this, and I'm going to turn it back to you for a story on this, Jim, because I know you have stories about people that um, just have kept me engaged. But doesn't it come down to, man, other people really have been there and are willing to be there for you, but you kind of got to be willing to risk getting engaged with them, don't you? Yes, takes risk. And and you do get burned. Some people whom you think are your friends will become a silent majority (laughs) real fast. Uh, I've learned a lot of coping skills. And... 30% 30% of a mental illness, the, 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 the cure treatment, 30% is medications. There are many people in the thousands in Great Britain who've been medication-free with bipolar, for instance, for 20 or 30 years because they've learned to do what they call inner work. That means trying to figure out what triggers them into a mania or depression. And... and so there's a lot of coping skills that you can learn. That's 70%. I have control over that. And so, for instance, uh, Paul, if if, uh, if I sense that I've got a cold coming on, maybe I start getting a little sore throat, mm-hmm. a runny nose, achy all over. I'm thinking, oh my, God. I gotta take some. I gotta take some coldies or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got to take some action. Got to okay. got to stay away from something. Well, I've yeah. got a depression coming on. First thing I ask is, what kind of stress have I been under lately? Who was I angry at? Because mm-hmm. that's my number one. Am I resentful towards somebody or me? 
Yeah. Right. So I've got to deal with that. And then some of the ways that I can deal with it. So I can I can sort of tell when a depression's coming on. I just went through, I had to fire somebody recently, one of my techies, and uh, it was very stressful. I've had to do that in the past, but uh, I've been through worse, but uh, I could have been set up for a nice, nice depression. So I got a couple books coming on that one book is a curious title. Writings of Pain, Writings of Hope, Candid Reflections of a Suicidal Christian Leader. <laughs> and there's not wow. supposed to be such a thing. I think that's it. You have to recognize, like alcoholism or anything, you have to get to a point and say, I have a problem and I need help. I can't handle this on my own. I got to get out of my own self here. I got to talk to somebody. Then when you do, you find people who just like you have similar things and you start to realize you're not alone and that there is hope. Yes. Uh, and, and that's what you need because to me, that depression was the absence of hope. Yes. And I'm going to, um, just because our time's running out, I, I'm going to wrap us up. But Jim, you've been one of those guys that if I get really far in the corner, I, I call you. And and I wait till I get really far far in the corner because I'm afraid I'll, I'll use you up, you know. And uh, uh, But I just want to thank you for the work you continue to do. And we're going to give your website that people can refer to. But before we go, um, years ago, I was trying to work something out with a person who was suffering from a, quote, personality disorder, unquote. And uh, it was a, diag- a disorder that um, was overused in its diagnosis in the 1990, but still it was quite real and very frightening to those who suffered from it and to those who loved them. Um, it's far too difficult to try to explain, except perhaps by referring to the underrated movie, Mary Poppins Returns. In it, Meryl Streep sings the song, Turning Turtle. Turning Turtle, what exactly does that mean? It means the whole world goes flippity-flop like a turtle on its back. And I don't know my up from my down, my east from my west, my topsy from my bottomsy. That's what it's like sometimes. When you're dealing with someone suffering from mental illness, you feel nuts and it gets painful. And they're repulsed by what should attract them and they love that which is damaging. The book on the time that I read, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me. Mm. Think about that. Imagine struggling with a brain that goes topsy-turvy and trying to live with those consequences. And unlike the movie, The rest of the world doesn't go topsy-turvy with you, and you feel really strange. The DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5, lists 10 personality disorders which are not something which go away. These are serious conditions which people have to deal with for a lifetime. Now, there's going to be a DSM-6 and a DSM-7 and so on, and psychology isn't a hard science. Interesting phrase, isn't it? Because there are a few things harder. When we talk about the hard and the soft sciences, we don't mean it that way. There are a few things harder um, than figuring out what makes people tick. And that's what psychology is supposed to do. Well, whether you're struggling alongside of others, enduring these kind of tough problems that we've been talking about, maybe you or or maybe somebody else, or both. I, I hope you've heard something here that'll help and 
give you some hope. Jim mentioned the 12 steps. The main author of the steps was an amazing guy who later in life was asked what he would change about the 12 steps since they'd already been in use helping alcoholics and addicts and many others for decades at this point. It's rumored that he said, I changed the word admitted to accepted. We admitted we were powerless. Wait, we accepted we were powerless. You mean I'm not in control? Yep. You mean no human being alive is in control? Yep. You mean I might be okay? Yep. You mean there might be an answer to my problem? Yep. Many years ago, a man said, for as many as are the promises of God, in Christ they are yes or amen. And it's worth a thought. For Church Hurts and this is John Bash. Love somebody and enjoy God today, won't you? that brings us to the close of another episode church hurts and as we take a deep breath and realize there's a lot to think about if you'd like to continue the conversation with our guest john jim stout you can find his books and a lot more at drjimstout.com he'll talk to you places that you can go to and turn to for help on yourself And if you want to continue the conversation or reach out to our host, Dr. John Bash, he's a shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving their own ministry too soon. Find out more about Church Hurts, just visit us at churchhurtsand.org. And whatever you do, please come back again next week.